Hi, welcome to a special episode of the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. This is a special series of five episodes in collaboration with the 14th Annual Learning Ideas Conference in New York City. This year, the conference is fully online with participants joining from around the world. In each episode, I talk with several speakers from the Learning Ideas Conference to highlight the interesting work and ideas that they will be presenting at the conference, and also to find out what they are excited about in the future of learning. Welcome to the second episode in this special series of the Art and Science of Learning podcast from the Learning Ideas Conference. This is the second day of the conference, which is taking place on June 15th, 2021. And in this episode, I speak to four individuals who will be presenting their fascinating work on this day of the conference. Their work spans a wide spectrum of different ways of learning and strategies in how to teach. My first guest is from New York City, and she is adjunct faculty of museum studies at John Hopkins University. And she will be talking about how technology can be used to bring together the wealth of educational resources that museums have around the world and bring them to a much wider audience. My second guest is from Rome, Italy, and she is a professor who has developed a program that teaches critical thinking skills through work-based learning activities, really important parts of the future of work. My third guest from Vienna, Austria, is going to discuss the program she has developed to help individuals and groups learn communication and also 21st century skills through a very interactive and interesting method that she will describe My fourth guest is a professor from Berlin, Germany, and he teaches data science to business school students. And he will discuss the engaging and effective strategies that he uses to bring a complex topic and make it more approachable and engaging. All fascinating conversations that I hope you will join me for. And if you would like to be kept up to date on the episodes coming out each day, please do subscribe on Apple or Spotify. Now let's jump into the first conversation. Deborah House, adjunct faculty of Museum Studies program at John Hopkins University, and she is also the president of House Inc. in New York City. She is the keynote speaker for today, and her talk is titled Museums as Catalysts for Digital Learning. Thank you, Deborah, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Before we delve into this topic, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Thank you for asking. Well, I'm a museum professional. I've worked in various museums all across the country, mostly art museums, but also science museums and children's museums. And generally speaking, my role in these museums, besides being a museum educator for which I was trained, um, degree in education from University of Chicago, my other role just seemed to be technology innovator. And honestly, it was just because no one else wanted to do it. And I was the only one who seemed to be willing, interested, and fearless. And I think that to be telling you the truth, that's really what it takes. So just to give you an idea, 
when I was a, a starting out on my museum education career, I was a public lecturer at the Art Institute of Chicago. And that collection, it's quite encyclopedic, is a beloved part of many Midwestern communities. It's I, you can't imagine how many people come into that museum and ask me as the tour guide to take them to a specific favorite painting. So that was an eye opener to me that people were forging these interesting bonds with art. And all of a sudden we get requests from, and this is the eighties, I'm telling you the story. Mm -hmm. And it's important from a technology point of view. We're right. getting these requests from different companies to say, oh, we'd like to put your art in our product and even from Bill Gates, I'd like to project images of the Art Institute of Chicago's collection on the walls of my new house in Seattle. And, you know, the museum was like, we don't even know what this means. Like we don't even, they're saying, just send the digital file. We didn't have any digital files of right. these yeah, art objects. And so it kind of started there, but we decided these things are important to try. And we got a lot of support from various funding sources to do some experimentation. And from there, that sort of channeled the rest of my career, known as a problem solver. And she, she's not afraid of technology. And Wonderful. in the 90s, when, right about the time where the museum's sector discovered the World Wide Web, like the mid 90s, and they all had these terrible websites with <laughs> tiny little pictures taken from, you know, 8-bit cell phones and just ridiculous websites. I was brought in to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to figure out how their new website that they were imagining, because they knew the first one was terrible. How could this new website serve the public in a more educational way? And we did a lot of experimentation. We had the good fortune to working with excellent development teams um, outside of the museum. And then eventually we were able to bring in internal technology development. So the reason I go into that is that sometimes people are expert in one aspect of the technology educational problem, either they're a teacher or they're a developer or maybe they're an artist who knows how to handle media. Mm -hmm. But actually just because of the way I was hired and the projects that were put in front of me, I actually had experience doing all of these things. That's and yeah, and you know, I loved my team at the Met. We had a really varied group from video producers to web programmers. And we created some of the first things like early 2000, we created some of the first platforms that allowed web visitors to see the Met in a different way. And one of the mm. ways we did that was the timeline. We created a 5,000 year timeline of world art featuring, oh, of course, amazing. the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection, but right. also linking out to other milestones in art history. And because we launched that in 2001, which was very early in the timeline of, of the web, all of the art history programs, resources, everybody linked to it. It continued to grow. We raised an endowment for that program at the Metropolitan Museum's Heilbrunn's Timeline of Art is the only one I know that is, has an endowment. I don't know of any other digital resource that does. And it continues to draw the most traffic of any aspect of the website. And what that tells you is that the point of the timeline is that you don't have to know anything about art history 
to get something out of this resource. All you have to know is a time frame and or a country. The original had a, a globe that you could find your country on the map and then dive right in. And we felt like that was the most accessible international way for people to enter the information that we had inside. And, you know, any museum, not just the Met, but there's a lot of information that you have to know in order to get to where you want to go, especially a museum as large as the Met, which is several football fields wide and long, mm -hmm. but not on the timeline. The timeline, pick a date, pick a country, and you can go there. Those kinds of aha moments are really what drive me to continue innovate. That's amazing. And you've been there from the very beginning of museums started to incorporate technology as, as you were describing, which is an incredible thing. I mean, we talk about technology and education often. Of course, museums are educational institutions and people go there to learn. But the use of technology, often people don't think about the use of technology in museums, whereas as you described, there's you know incredible things that you can do with technology to make museums interesting and informative to a very wide spectrum of audiences. As you said, you could be an absolute expert in art and go to the Metropolitan, or you can be a complete beginner and start navigating that world uh, from a different perspective so that it brings you in, which is absolutely amazing. I look forward to hearing more about what you're going to be talking about in your keynote. Your talk is called Museums as a Catalyst for Digital Learning. So what is the essence of the talk that you will be giving? Yeah, it well, I I'm not really going to take the time to walk people through my my history, so it's good that you're asking me that, but the impulse is the same. In other words, how can we make museum learning and access to museum content more central to mm. our thinking about educational reform? You know, this is a really critical moment. The former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, used to say, never waste a good crisis. Mm, and I feel absolutely. like that's where we are right now. Of course, it was, it's always been very common for schools to like go on a field trip and have that day at the museum. I wish it was even more often, more regular than it really is. Of course, with COVID, that completely came to a stop. It's a moment for us to rethink how we intersect with our educational work as a, as a society. And mm -hmm. I don't just mean in K-12, I mean in college, I mean in higher ed, I mean in lifelong learning, and in fact, even in our senescence. We mm -hmm. have examples right now that are museum-based that are doing incredible things, but they're all one-offs. I think mm -hmm. we have to look at the entirety that museums bring to the table in the digital world now. I'm not saying they need to change the way they do things in the physical space, but in the digital space, they really need solid partnerships that think on a larger scale in order to take full advantage. Mm. So that, for example, a user can go online and navigate through several different museums around the world on a similar platform. Is that what you're referring to? So that you can connect the learning from the metropolitan to similar types of museums around the world. And the, is that what you mean? What, yeah, what you I mean, mean that's that? an example. My talk really focuses on the why. And I think there's, you know, to really understand how to best solve the problem. I mean, right now, 
if you know where to go, and that's a key phrase right there, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to Google Arts and Culture, or if you know the right Wikipedia entry, you can do exactly what you described. There are mm-hmm. museums that have fantastic tours out there. It's yeah. just that when I'm starting from scratch and I'm typing into Google, like, I, I don't know where to go. I, I don't even mm-hmm. know what words to say. I don't mean not even yes. know that that's what I'm looking for. Right. There's sort of a public awareness maybe let's call it a portal issue that Mm -hmm. needs to be resolved. And, you know, frankly, museums are working on the edges of that. Like, for example, there's a big movement to use Wikimedia and Wikipedia to bring our, the objects in different museum collections more into focus when people are already looking for something in that kind of an online encyclopedia, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a number three, I want to say, maybe number five top search site for the entire internet. And it's in a zillion languages. That is something that really should be encouraged. Having some help there in terms of making the connections and telling us which content is important. And, you know, there often we get disconnected from people who really need this online information. In, in what way? How do you mean that we get disconnected? Well, okay, so here's an example. You know, museums are largely governed by scholars, and we mm-hmm. just get interested in the information for the sake of the information. But, you know, we would never think that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's a group of middle schoolers who are using databases all over the U.S. to try to reconstruct a town Greenwood, that was also known as Black Wall Street 100 years ago before it was burned down to the ground by white supremacists. Here's a group of local kids. They're going through a program where they're learning how to code and digitally they're reconstructing each of the businesses with their own website describing the businesses and everything else. Well, you know, I just read about that in the paper. Museums should be knowing about how middle schools in this case, are using constructivist learning technology or approaches rather. They're using constructivist learning approaches Mm -hmm. in ways that correspond with their learning how to code. So yes, yes, they're learning how to code, but they're also learning how to use museum databases and they're creating something that in and of itself has a very important value. That's really interesting. Sounds like an amazing project. Mm-hmm. You're going to be speaking about the why, and you've just described a little bit about the gaps that you see. Yeah. Can you speak more specifically about what gaps do you see in this yep. museum space to connect it with learning much more clearly? Happy to. Even before COVID, museums were on a path of self-examination. And some of this has come out of conversation around decolonization. Even since I started in the museum field, there were raging battles over collections that may or may not have been acquired, let's just say legally, but in some cases, Mm -hmm. it's more ethically than legally. And whether they should either give back the objects or repatriate that like there needs to be some resolution Mm -hmm. and only in the last five years has this really taken I think a a tremendous hold and along with the movement for Black Lives Matter and a lot of internal hand-wringing around museums which you know I mean let's be honest the whole construct of a museum was based on a colonization mindset. Look at all this great stuff we collected in one place. And by Mm -hmm. the way, let me tell you the story 
as seen through the eyes of the colonizer. There isn't really a lot of multiple perspective in how these stories get told. Sure, there's a lot of exceptions. And I'm speaking mostly about, let's say, encyclopedic type museums that are covering large amounts of content. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also, I just need to really enforce that there have been other museums like the National Museum of American Indian in the Smithsonian and other single cultural museums who do not fall under this rubric. But Mm -hmm. by and large, we are not terribly critical of the ways in which we display and choose to display objects that tell history from a lot of different points of view. And guess what? Schools are also going through this problem. Mm -hmm. Even the Department of Education at, at the federal level has issued just recently sort of alarming, well, I wouldn't say alarming, maybe more alarmist missives about how history needs to be more inclusive. We need to be including more stories of more different kinds of experiences, cultures. Um, There isn't just one story to be told about, um, in this case, I'm just speaking about America, but you can apply it to wherever. Mm -hmm. And of course, technology you see as a vehicle that can really facilitate and make this easier and possible and and make the connections. Exactly. But also, there's no other place that teachers can get this material. It takes forever to make textbooks. But museums have a lot of this material. And they have not just, you know, a record with text, they have pictures, they've got videos, they've got archaeological information, they have x-rays, they have a lot of really rich media-based content that could energize a lot of this kind of discussion and investigation at every academic level. Mm, Absolutely. What you're describing is definitely a huge collective collaboration and endeavor. What do you think are the first steps that should be taken or the the hurdles that need to be overcome in order to make this possible? Great question. I really feel like, and this is mostly the purpose of my talk, is to that there's a coalition of the willing is required. Mm-hmm. We need to find the people who feel that educational reform, a social change agenda is really important and we have to yes. fight for it. And mm-hmm. who are those who are willing to work together to figure this out. And I think it can be done. Museums really need some guidance in terms of platforms that they're not already familiar with. Like they know how to make an online database, but they really don't know how schools work, what they need, Mm -hmm. the kinds of media that's helpful, what kind of support they need. It's a whole new world. Schools have also been transformed, not just by the last year, but you know, they want to be more inclusive. You know, there's a huge educational deficit and there's many people who don't get enough schooling. Can museums mm-hmm. provide some of that? I think they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. They can. And the possibility of using the riches that museums have and bringing it to the learners through technology would be incredible because so many people can't go to those big museums. It, they will never in their lives be able to go to those incredible museums around the world or even in their own in their own country, but technology can certainly bring it to every classroom. Are there any initiatives for people who are working in museums now and thinking, yes, I do wanna do this, but of course not starting from scratch. Are there any initiatives people should be aware of? Yes, and I'll be reviewing a few of those. One thing I think 
might be familiar to your listeners are massive open online courses. There are a handful of museums who've been working both independently and with universities to produce some of the most interesting and visual appealing and, you know, rich media online courses. And those of you maybe taken one or two, I mean, they're not known for their extraordinary media production values, but the ones that museums create, especially I want to say the Museum of Modern Art, which is, I think, has eight, maybe 10, um, Mm -hmm. some even in Chinese uh, courses right now on the Coursera platform. They uh, really do an excellent job of creating great videos that feature wonderful behind the scenes of different aspects of the museum. They also create what they call meetups and they'll have like an online lecture and invite their enrollees to attend. Sometimes the curators travel to different cities and they'll put a call out through the Coursera platform. Hey, if you're in Berlin next week, I'm gonna be speaking at the Mm -hmm. Neue Museum, like come and see me and they do show up. So it's a really a different concept of how a museum lives in this hybrid digital real space and becomes a, a true source of learning for you for your whole life. Absolutely. Can you share maybe one or two resources where an individual or educators can have curated lists of these types of museum resources? Is there such a thing? That's one of the big problems. Right. That they're buried in places like as an expert museum and as an expert in the museum sector, I know where to find them, but mm-hmm. they're not at all obvious, really not. Yes. And that is the important thing, especially in the world of technology yeah. and educational technologies and so many different aspects of it. Having these curated lists are so essential because it's, it's, it's like digging through a haystack often yes. to find the right thing. Really great analogy. I think the best one might be just because I think your listeners will be able to find it easily is Google arts and culture, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I, and that's a highly specific list. It is by no means um, representative, but it's the good start. Right. Well, that's good. That is really good. Well, there's a lot of exciting work ahead and I'm sure it's happening in many, many different places around the world in museums, exactly as you're doing a lot of interesting work in this field. And what aspect of this topic that you're going to be discussing, what do you find most interesting? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a change maker. And one of the reasons I left the museum field and started my own company is that I realized how exhausting it was to have somebody who constantly wants to make change within your staff. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, Yes, organizational change is definitely very hard. And I'm sure that you must have experienced that firsthand. Well, and also the museums, you know, they're not, it's not easy to change a museum. Right. You know, 90% of their budget is about keeping a physical space open and operative. So mm-hmm. when your change is involved, is, is asking them to spend more money on things that don't involve bricks and mortar or mm-hmm. objects, it's very difficult to sell. But yeah. the company I founded is actually serving almost exclusively museums and universities. 
Mm -hmm. also not so crazy about changing. Between those two client bases, I, along with my team, we work really closely with educators. And sometimes it's coaching, sometimes it's project management, sometimes it's grant writing, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's production, you know, we make stuff Mm -hmm. for them. But of services that they just can't do on their own and they don't have the resources at hand to make them happen. Right. Not a lot so, of educators have have the experiences I've had by hands-on practice. And so they need somebody like me to really walk them through how to do it. And eventually they do it on their own. And you know, as an educator, I find that incredibly rewarding. What is one of the one of the most interesting or exciting projects that you did? Well, we just got an award for a really great project. Um, um, Yeah, and we're really very, very happy with it. The URL is muslims, M-U-S-L-I-M-S dot Brooklyn History, B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N History. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And um, it was a project that came to us through the Brooklyn Historical Society. Now that museum has been uh, merged with the Brooklyn Library and it's called the Center for Brooklyn History. Mm -hmm. So they, about a dozen years ago, President Deborah Schwartz realized that their collection of objects in this um, history center was exclusively documenting European existence in Brooklyn. And if you know anything about Brooklyn these days, it is the most diverse place on the planet. Hundreds of languages, people from all over the world. And what was the value of a quote unquote Brooklyn History Center if it didn't also reflect the people who are living there now um, and not just 400 years ago? So um, they, they quickly set on a task of creating oral histories of representing the communities that were present and vibrant in Brooklyn today. And Mm -hmm. one of those communities was the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And along with that effort, the Department of Education in New York City, you know, it's the largest school system in in the country. They said, hey, guess what? 10% of our teaching and student population are Muslim, they identify as Muslim, and we have nothing for them. We have nothing about the history of Muslims in Brooklyn. We have nothing about immigration. We have nothing about life as a Muslim. We have nothing. So is there anything you could do for us? And so they, of course, immediately thought of the, I think there are 50 oral histories that they'd been collecting, but they realized that these two and a half hour long conversations that were really meant to be a level historical documentation, they don't really translate well to a 45 minute class. And, you know, they really needed some work. So we, they brought us in and we invented an educational resource, which is the URL that I shared with you. And that resource was also meant for general public, but the primary purpose of it was let's get everyone used to meeting Muslims from Brooklyn and seeing a timeline of Muslims in Brooklyn. And we also have stories pulled out where there are clips of the oral histories that 
seem to fall together in a nice little story that we mapped out in a Brooklyn map. And then there are lesson plans, like a dozen lesson plans, where teachers can I, are told which clips can be used to teach which lessons. So like, for example, there's a lesson around 9-11, where many of the oral history narrators talked about their experience of 9-11 and what happened before, what happened after, how they feel now about it. And what the counselors in the schools tell us is that when they play those stories for kids who have suffered from trauma, never mind if they're Muslim or not, that doesn't matter. But if they're perhaps recent immigrants from, to Brooklyn and they're having trouble fitting in or they, they're experiencing racism, when they hear those stories, it really helps them. It helps mm, them connect to how they're feeling and be able to express how they're feeling and to be able to kind of own it and move on. And so, you know, that's another why, you know, like museums have, their storehouses of these stories are enormous, right? Mm -hmm. And think about all of the um, people that we could be empathizing with and connecting with more if we had more digital records telling these stories of, of different experiences throughout our country. It would be great. Oh, absolutely. That would be fantastic. And that's a really great example of bringing in insights from the museum, the stories from the museums using technology to bring it to a larger pop public in very different ways. So that's, uh, that's absolutely beautiful and, and has such a great impact, which is, which is great to hear. So what do you hope people will take away from your talk? Oh, I want a coalition of the willing. I okay. hope that everybody listening to the talk is say, hey, let's do this. Let's get yes. the best minds thinking about this. Right. Even if we just start, you know, maybe audience sector by audience sector or maybe platform by platform, I think it could be done. I think that there's enough synergy in the museum field right now where we're tired of making one-offs, you know. I don't want to make another little website that's fantastic that gets buried somewhere on a museum website and never found like we need to think synergistically about how to work together to make this happen in a way that's as memorable as a museum experience Absolutely. you know going to a museum is so memorable you use your senses you I mean there's there's so much about being in a museum that just sticks in your brain and we need to bring that to our digital work too Wonderful. So you're looking for people to make connections, to network, and to collaborate, which is exactly the purpose of these types of conferences, isn't it? I hope so. I really do. Yeah. Good. And before, before we leave, what are you excited about looking forward in the world of learning? Well, as I said, this is a moment of upheaval. Mm -hmm. And I find it very exciting because people across the aisle are having conversations about changing in ways that we never thought possible. I really yeah. do think that um, the strife that we've had lately over our social justice initiatives um, is really going to produce positive change. And I think it's going to ripple into a lot of different um, aspects of how we work with each other and the world that we actually want to build for all of us. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise in the world of museums and technology. And I look forward to your talk. Thank you. And I look forward to your talk. Thank you very much. It's great seeing you. Take care. Next guest is Professor Antonella Poce from the University of Modena e Reggio Emilia in Italy. And her talk is entitled Supporting the Development of Critical Thinking Skills Through Work-Based Learning Activities. Thank you so much, Antonella, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, actually. <laughs> I'm honored to be here, really. Oh, it's a fantastic topic, and I, I can't wait to hear more about it. But before we begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I have been teaching uh, experimental pedagogy at Italian University for many years now. I chaired uh, the Center for Museum Studies at University of Roma 3, Department of Education, for, for different years, and very recently, I moved as full professor to the University of Modena and Reggio Media Department of Education and Humanities. And there I started a new center for research that is mm -hmm. called Intellect. Uh, that is a center for heritage, education, well-being and critical thinking. And is a center that is based on the idea that uh, interdisciplinarity and uh, museum environments, uh, heritage environments can really be places where critical thinking can be enhanced, developed, uh, supported, and um, in view of facilitating especially well-being and uh, social development. We work with different uh, colleagues actually from different institutions based in different countries all over the world. Um, um, many of uh, uh, different of the people actually involved in the Learning Ideas Conference are part of our scientific uh, uh, board, David Gurnik, uh, but also Deborah Awis, who is going to be a keynote speaker during the conference and many other colleagues. Also, Sharon Bailing, who I think will be one of uh, the panelists uh, in one of the sessions of the conference, will be is part of the scientific uh, board of this uh, center that has been recently created in the University of Modena and Reggio Emilia. It is really a, a new start, actually, uh, because we wish to support a different way of teaching and learning, especially at higher education. That's uh, also, could say, the, the core topic of the presentation I will give over, over the conference. Wonderful. So it sounds like this is really a center that is exactly what is needed these days, which is interdisciplinary studies. We, we wish. And, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and really enhancing critical thinking skills, uh, which is elusive and incredibly important. You're teaching critical thinking skills in the context of museums and historic sites. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, actually, the idea is to use the museum and cultural side and heritage locations or context to support uh, the development of cross-sectional skills. That's amazing. And Italy is certainly 
full of is a place where you have lots of instances where to start certain activities that can be considered mm, pedagogically pedagogically relevant to develop certain kind of uh, of of skills and uh, especially in view as i was saying of supporting well-being uh, well-being is, a, is a, again a broad concept but um, we want to um, to interpret it as a way to allow participation of different kinds of categories that for many different reasons could be excluded from their active citizenship. Mm, so well-being in the terms of having inclusive and diverse exactly. students involved. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So in your talk, you're going to be discussing this program. Can you tell me about it. Can you tell me what does this program look like? Yeah, I think actually the, the essence of, of the talk is uh, the developing the link between higher education and the workplace uh, through mm-hmm. critical thinking enhancement. So critical thinking is actually the educational knot that links the different kind of uh, dimensions, higher education and the workplace. But the study is uh, that I will present is actually a pilot study uh, carried out within uh, our postgraduate courses, where some postgraduate courses where we involved actively uh, different stakeholders in, in order to offer uh, different kind of activities to our students where they have been directly involved in view of enhancing, supporting critical thinking skills. What I really care about is such an involvement, the involvement of different kinds of stakeholders that could mm-hmm. help us developing um, the most suitable higher education offer to help students to be active and uh, also, I would say, reactive to what is the labor market needs at the moment. So you're, you're working with industry in collaboration with the university to develop how yeah. to uh, teach students critical thinking skills. Is, is that the essence yeah. of... Uh, yeah, these are different kinds of uh, um, companies that, of course, are interested in what uh, is our field, so education. Yes. But uh, the idea is to involve them as, as cooperating teaching staff, in a way, mm-hmm. because we okay. plan the activities together and they work with the students autonomously, actually. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, of course, a design, there's a plan, there's a, a project, and they work on that together with us, and they actually and in, in the pilot study I will present, we, uh, we analyzed the way this kind of activities were, were carried out, how the students reacted, and mm-hmm. actually we measured also through a spe- specific uh, evaluation uh, tools, the levels, critical thinking levels that were enhanced during these kind of activities. That's fantastic. From the student perspective, what does this learning look like? You said that they are working with an industry partner on a specific project that enhances their critical thinking. 
Yeah. What does this look like from the students? Yeah, it, it, I couldn't. You call these these stakeholders industry. You know, there are some companies. Uh, some are, are come from from comp from specific companies, but some come from uh, environments where these students, once they graduate, of course, will be uh, employed. So I would call them employers or. Anyway, cultural institutions representatives that yes. work on this on this kind of uh, issues, okay. potential employers for for our students. Actually, they the the what I consider very interesting in relation to this study is uh, having the possibility, having had the possibility to make students reflect on the quality of course the, the, the teaching and learning offered had the, the possibility to experience, but also to reflect on their own critical thinking skills. So mm-hmm. we had the possibility to work with them and to assess their critical thinking skills through the analysis of their products of mm-hmm. what they produce during during the, the courses, the modules. Yes. But we had also the possibility to develop a different tool that allowed them to self-assess their, uh, and to reflect, I would say, on their own critical thinking skills and on how these critical thinking skills uh, developed over the time of the lecturing. Right. And that is such an important aspect, isn't it? To be able to reflect on your own. Yes. So we could also, in a way, compare these two dimensions. Uh, The one where we were those assessing their critical thinking skills and the one where they themselves reflected on their learning oh, path. Interesting. And was it quite similar or was there? No, it's completely different. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely different. But you have to attend my talk. And... To find out more. <laughs> Absolutely. Out more. What would you like to have people take away from your talk? Yeah, I would like people to understand the relevance of uh, evidence-based research. And so mm-hmm. in this case, the use of data, the use of uh, information that we collected from the experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other main idea is that they could, uh, hopefully, uh, they could understand the importance of critical thinking skills development, which is at the core of uh, my research, but of uh, the objectives uh, that we all should keep in mind as as educators Mm -hmm. and also uh, the fact that uh, when you work in teaching and learning especially in higher education but whatever level of instruction you work in also in training uh, you need to design your activities as if they were research projects actual Mm -hmm. research projects so the design the project of your teaching and learning activities should be really uh, well thought in advance organized in different phases having Mm -hmm. the possibility to readjust the situation to the actual needs that can come out over the the time of of your project of your uh, teaching and learning session absolutely 
That's really important. Definitely. Well, it's a very important topic and I look forward to learning more about it. But before we end more broadly, what is it that excites you about the field of learning right now? What do you find that's interesting? Yeah, I think that uh, from the pandemic, especially, uh, we, we learned a lot and especially the need a very effective extension of our spaces, actually also metaphorically <laughs> uh, is possible through yes. technology. And we cannot miss the opportunity of working critically with technology anyway. Yes. So absolutely. of course, it, it cannot be only technology. It cannot be only, uh, you know, distance learning or think just technology being uh, here without, you know, with such barriers. But, and of course, it, it's good to, to meet in person, you know, to exchange ideas, to have a coffee together. Definitely. But at the same time, there's a, a huge possibility there. Maybe without this, this pandemic, which is a, a, a very dramatic uh, event, we wouldn't have thought about anyway. It gives us the push that we needed. Yes. 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 yes, in a way it shed light on an issue that was not taken in maybe in the right consideration because we thought, okay, we could do that, we could do that other thing, but, you know, there wasn't, as you said, the right push. So mm. let's not miss the opportunity we have. Right? Yeah. Yes, to use technology better and to enhance learning process yeah and to think how to use it in a way that could learning development growth you know without technology we wouldn't have the possibility to be here me and you having this conversation you you're Absolutely. based in canada and i'm based in italy mm-hmm. uh, in <laughs> a few minutes i will have another meeting with other colleagues from all over the world so one hour later i will be in modena with other colleagues so you know it's something that it wasn't even considered possible just two years ago Exactly. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks Your talk you. is really looking forward to it. And thank you for sharing some insights. Thank you, really. See you soon. My next guest is Dr. Christina Mel, and she is the founder and CEO of Talk Shop, an education consultancy in Vienna, Austria. And she will be giving a talk titled Lab 21, a space for learning, sharing, and innovating. Thank you very much, Christina, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Before we jump into what your company does and the specific methods you're going to be discussing, can you please tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household in southern Austria, in the countryside, close to the Italian and Slovenian border. Mm. So I spent my childhood in nature. But my parents also used to take me to museums and galleries and art spaces. So I was used to thinking out of the box and dreaming big already as a child. Wonderful. Also, my passion for facilitating other people was there early. And when I was in primary school, I 
founded a learning group to support weaker pupils. And yeah, and we used sketchbooks and um, we're writing plays for puppet theater and performing. I was typing my first uh, science fiction novel on my father's typewriter when I was 10. So it was a, yeah, it was a fantastic childhood and very creative. So I, I grew up in a very creative environment. Mm. And then later on, I, I went to Vienna and studied translation science and collaborative learning design in Vienna mm -hmm. and Amsterdam. And then uh, later on, I founded my own company and I'm, I'm based in Vienna now and I work journalist and learning designer and a trainer. What I do is I, I work uh, a lot with artists and um, I, I have developed this uh, 2CG methodology and lab 21 over the years. 2CG actually stands for content and context specific generic competency coaching and okay. by this I mean 21st century skills. So nowadays right. we talk about 21st century skills or future skills and I particularly refer to communication and language skills, creativity and imagination, collaborative team skills, empathy, critical thinking skills. And this methodology is applied in Lab 21. And mm -hmm. Lab 21 is a space for learning, sharing, and innovating. And I, I call it a hyperstructure for learning. And what do I mean by hyperstructure? Hyperstructure is a flexible, collaborative learning environment that can be installed in multiple contexts. What does that actually look like? If I were going to walk into that room, what does that actually look like? Yeah, actually, as I said, it's a hyperstructure and it can be installed in your context. Okay. So that means either you just walk into your office and we come and join you, mm -hmm. or you join us in a theater, on a stage, in nature, in, in some nice and beautiful place where learning, sharing, and collaborating really makes sense. Past year, I mean, we, we also went digital with the Lab 21, so it is now also a digital space, and uh, we use learning platforms and video conferences to meet other learners. So 2CG refers to content and contact-specific generic competency coaching. So can you, you gave a little bit of an insight on what that means, but what are you teaching in that? What are the skills that people walk away with? The people we work with are leaders of public or private company sectors, employees, team members, but also students or pupils. And when you ask what skills are they walking away with, it depends on their context and on their okay. needs, actually. So very often they, they come to us because they need to improve their communication skills. They need to improve their critical thinking skills, their problem solving skills, their team skills. They need to tap into their future possibilities. And we help them, we support them in unlocking their creativity. So what we do in Lab 21 basically is we make use of artistic impulses from puppetry, theater, poetry, literature, music, to help people connect with their intuition and creative power. We enable them to think out of the box, to 
Well, we use uh, associative techniques and uh, special storytelling formats to help people just really leave their comfort zone and their daily routine and come up with new and crazy ideas in, in a joyful way. The skills they're walking away, that really depends on their needs, on their context, and it could be that they want to improve their well-being, for example. So, On an individual basis or yeah, as, a, as a team, individual. maybe a team can come to you as well. Exactly. So we work okay. with individuals, but also with teams. And what is very, very unique uh, about Lab 21 is that people can connect across organizational cultures, across hierarchies, across disciplines. It's a, a multilingual space also, and people from different backgrounds, they meet and they share and uh, collaborate and come up with new ideas uh, together. So it's, it's actually a peer learning space that is grounded in the principles of communities of practice. And mm. uh, communities of practice are groups of practitioners who have an interest that they share. And this interest could be, I don't know, um, establishing a well-being culture in my company. Or an interest could be uh, do something for the environment. Or let's, I don't know, uh, take social responsibility. Or let's mm -hmm. uh, see how we want to work in the future. Mm -hmm. Let's um, make use of digitalization. So there is a lot of topics. What people get in Lab 21 with the help of the 2ZG methodology is a change in perspective. So they, they can just really change perspective. They get inspiration. They get customized content uh, so that they can really deal with their topic and uh, work towards reaching their goal. We also help people identify their goal, actually. Yeah. So it's a complex um, thing. Definitely very complex. So maybe just to draw a little bit of an image of what this looks like, you said that, for example, someone comes to you or a group comes to you and you help them explore what it is actually that they want. You gave the example of well-being. So what would that experience look like? In the case of well-being, I, I can give you an example. When we did a workshop series with uh, people from different departments of a huge public sector organization, these people, they met for face-to-face -face or online workshops. So that was hybrid, actually, because it took place last year. And they got a customized artistic impulse. So I once worked with a performing artist who gave a performance. I worked with a puppeteer and uh, the puppet gave some well-being input, customized input. And so we, we use inspiration from the arts to help people just really have new associations, uh, explore new pathways of thinking and doing. And then, of course, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a a designed learning experience where I'm the facilitator. So, so I facilitate these people. So when they get this creative impulse and they have a phase where they just really think out of the box and uh, brainstorm and come up with crazy ideas. And, uh, and then, of course, we help as a facilitator. We help to identify what's the bottom line. So what do they need to improve their well-being situation at work? And then we help them define 
their goals or targets. And then as a next step, we help them work out concrete action steps uh, because mm-hmm. having good and innovative ideas is one thing, right. but implementing these steps is another. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And what do you find uh, most interesting in this entire process? So first of all, I really love to work with people. I love to work with people who are passionate about what they do. And I I really enjoy seeing them totally focused and and, uh, passionate and committed. So I find it truly exciting when people give me feedback that they could fully focus on the topic and that they could explore new facets of their own personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other week we, uh, we hosted a workshop for young students who are trained to become programmers and uh, media technologists. And there we took a play from Moliere Amphitryon, uh, written by Moliere in the 17th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. And uh, we asked these future programmers to deal with certain scenes and the the communication behavior of the protagonists of the play. And then we asked them to translate these scenes into modern day TikTok video formats. And this was so beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, and these students, they enjoyed it so much and they could forget about their daily COVID routine for, for a whole morning and come up with fantastic ideas and uh, practice their empathy skills, their critical thinking skills, their creativity and imagination. And this is what I find really exciting. When I see mm-hmm. it really makes sense, people just really are very committed, engaged, but what feels truly rewarding in these situations is when I see how learners can fully commit themselves to that topic and uh, they experience such a deep learning. Yeah, I, I find this just beautiful, but also very effective. And I think the method allows for a very fast and effective progress in the learning journey. Wonderful. And what are some of the things that students tell you after this, these experiences? They tell me, they tell me various things. So on the one hand, they tell me that they just really had fun, you know, and I think learning also should be fun Yes. Um, so that they enjoyed the experience, but also that they can build trust. And I think this is absolutely important that we create a learning environment that is based on trust and mutual respect. And peer sharing, yeah. So, and this is what always comes back from 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 learners. I mean, they they frequently give this feedback, and uh, I think at the end of the day, it's it's about passion, it's about practice, it's about fun, and it's about commitment. Absolutely, that's wonderful. And of course, for any organization to be able to work together. They need all of those elements, don't they? Uh, before they can work together, learn together, improve, they have to have that trust and understanding of each other and and to open up the creativity, get that flowing. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, it sounds very interesting. And this is just one aspect of your company called Talk Shop. Do you mind giving us a quick overview of what the company does overall? Yeah, so we are specialized in uh, creating collaborative learning 
experiences. This is the parts where we work with artists, but then we also provide communications training, people who want to improve their second language skills or presentation skills uh, and communication behavior. And uh, we facilitate communities of practice, peer groups who share an interest and who want to drive change in their organization or across hierarchical levels. And yeah, I personally, I also work as a journalist. So that's... Well, communication is an incredibly important part of, of our modern day, and it's extremely important to have, be effective in it. So that's, it sounds like you're doing incredible, very interesting work and important, especially more and more as we need to integrate learning into our everyday life at work. These types of skills, creativity, communication, trust and bonding of the group in communities of practice is also essential. So that sounds really fascinating. I can't wait to hear more in your talk about how you do this. But more broadly, in education, in the learning space, looking forward, what is it that excites you? Yeah, when, I, when I look into what's hopefully coming, what excites me, I really hope that leaders and uh, politicians, that they realize that we really need to provide a human vision for education. So I think it's the human skills that excite me. While we were really so focused on training rational approaches and purely analytical methods in the, in the past decades, I think now we have reached a point in time where we should focus again more on the humanities and on our human way of being. And um, what I personally think is that rational methods, they definitely are important, but they have the limits when it comes to inspiring change. And I think we can only change the world or make the world a better place, uh, save the environment, uh, when we are ready to change our behavior. Artistic impulses are a great way to inspire change and a change in behavior. Yeah, this is what I'm actually looking forward to, so that organizations and governments realize that they need to put more focus on, onto the human aspect of learning. Yes, absolutely. A very, very important thing. I mean, we have all the tools, but an incredibly important part is to understand our human aspect. And you're doing incredibly interesting work in that space. So thank you so much for sharing it and giving a little bit of an insight into the unique methods that you're using. Thank you very much, Christina. It was wonderful to meet you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about my company. Thank you. My next guest is Professor Dr. Marcus Birkenkraut from Berlin School of Economics and Law. And his talk is entitled Teaching Data Science in a Synchronous Online Introductory Course at Business School. And it's a case study. Welcome, Marcus, to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, you know, currently, as you said, I'm a professor at the Berlin School of Economics and Law in Berlin, Germany. That's uh, one of the largest business schools in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I'm a professor of business informatics, which is uh, a mix between computer science and uh, business administration, more or less. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've also directed e-learning for the school for many years, since almost pretty since I came on board. And uh, this year is kind of exciting for me because I'll be joining another 
School, Lyon College in Batesville, Arkansas, as an associate visiting professor of data science later in the year. So I'm only going to be at this school for another month or so, and then I'm going to be on leave of absence. Okay, wonderful. And, and so you're going to be talking about data science hmm. in, in your talk. So can you tell me a little bit about the essence of your talk? A little bit of a synopsis. The essence of my talk. Well, i um, got to go back a little bit, maybe. Um, the school is a business school, so data and learning from data is, uh, is very important. Uh, but for some reason or another, you know, data science is not part of the traditional curriculum. It's an interdisciplinary science itself. It's quite, uh, you know, complex as an interdisciplinary science. Uh, it includes, you know, statistics, computer science, and any other uh, application area, like healthcare, genomics, finance, and so on. So there's, there are always going to be people at the school who will find data science interesting, but they haven't been trained as data scientists, so they, mm. they lack... Um, let's say, more intimate knowledge and mastery of uh, the latest tools. And one of the problems with data science, or one of the advantages, if you like, is that it develops really, really fast. And so a couple of years ago, I thought, well, we should actually try to bring this in right at the ground floor, as it were, and mm. start a course uh, in data science for undergraduates. And so I conceived that course. My purpose really was to find out if it could be taught as a synchronous online introductory course and I had conceived that plan before the pandemic so it mm. was you know well prepared yeah well prepared but <laughs> kind of quote-unquote fortunate um, yes. that I had the opportunity to do this just at that time um, and I learned a lot from it and uh, the results were so successful that we decided to uh, take this on and you know put it on a more solid basis but this is really the basis the basis some basic assumption is business school students need data science in a professional setting and they need to be taught this and uh, how could we do it it's very important absolutely and this breadth of multidisciplinary studies is such an important thing isn't it that there's of course data scientists mm. but business school students really need to have an understanding a to a certain level on, on how they can communicate and work with the data scientists in their field. Makes it a very interesting course, I'm sure. Well, but it's also, there's a problem as you know, as everybody knows, because of the pandemic, you know, the, let's say the status of statistics or understandable science and the communication of science results has suddenly become very important to everyone, not just to yes. a small sliver of society. So um, there's been a, a great upwind for data science in this context. So I would say more general issues, not just data science, the scientific application, but things like data literacy and computer literacy are suddenly becoming important to everyone, not just to specialists. And so yes. this has definitely provided some additional wind under the wings of this course. And so what do you find most interesting, most fascinating about the designing and running this course and how it's been taken up? Well, first thing that comes to my, there's sort of an internal and an external thing. I start with the external thing. The, uh, the course was initially offered in the program of extracurricular studies, as mm -hmm. it's called at our school, which really is, means that it's open to students from, from all disciplines and all programs. Okay. And what the first thing that surprised me was the great number of, of different students that came, you know, in, un, undergraduates from economics, from accounting, controlling, uh, computer science students from, they really flocked to that course from yes. all directions. And that, 
that's sort of the external thing that interested me. And that, of course, confirmed that this was a hot topic and something that was interesting, even though it was announced as a somewhat technical course. So the statistical programming language R was chosen as the basis uh, mm -hmm. for this. And uh, that's the external thing. And the internal thing that uh, interested me most was I'm a bit of a you know, sort of a tool guy. So I, I like, you know, it's sort of appropriate for people who do computer science. I like tools. Yes. Um, and I like the latest tools. And I like to bring a lot of tools into class. And so I conceived this course to be kind of a tool bonanza. And okay. uh, I was not clear. I wasn't sure that the students would actually take, take that well. But they uh -huh. did. Uh, oh, so, um, you know, there's a very large, long list. I'm going to talk about that in my talk long list of tools. I think there's like probably 15 or so different tools that we use. And this is besides the online learning technology. You know, the, the whole thing took place in a webinar setting. Like we are right. in Zoom now, we use Big Blue Button and we mm -hmm. have a Moodle platform. But then in addition to that, I used a bunch of different tools, some of which were for didactics and the other mm -hmm. ones were more closely related to, to data science. And the students were not just you know, uh, they didn't, didn't take it just in a sporty way, but they actually <laughs> really embraced that spirit, which makes me feel excited for them and for the success of these students, because, you know, the changing of tools to engage with one tool and being able to use it for another 10 or 20 years, as my generation, you know, had originally hoped to do it, that's yes. gone forever. You know, yes. there's a new tool, a new approach, a new paradigm coming up about every year, or every two years. So time moves very differently in, uh, in this field. It's important to be a continuously learning and continuously yeah. updating. Yeah. And so these tools are tools to use in data science, but also some of them are tools in the way you teach data science, yeah. aren't they? Okay, so that will be very interesting. Kahoot quizzes, I do a lot of quizzes. I use, mm -hmm. I use sort of a tool that's uh, in between those two worlds, GitHub which is a tool very yes. often used by developers. I use, um, I created a lot of videos. In fact, I was positively and negatively surprised about how many videos I could create. I created 115 videos for this course alone. Oh my goodness. So that wow. was quite, quite major. Um, uh, yeah, so um, I used uh, some platforms. I used academic alliances, for example, an academic alliance with DataCamp, which is a very popular uh, online learning school for assignments and so on and so on. I don't want to go through. Great. Anything. Well, looking forward to your talk. But what do you hope people will take away from your talk? Yeah. What? Well, first of all, the you know the importance of teaching this stuff, teaching it not as a specialized discipline, you know, mm -hmm. that only speaks to technical people, but something that should speak to anyone who wants to be data literate, and that really mm -hmm. means everyone, because everybody should want to become more data literate. Um, then the possibility of doing this online, which wasn't clear if that would work out, and the role of tools related to productivity, computation, and cognition in this course. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the more specific thing that I would have hoped people take away from this. And then there's a broader, broader vision, but maybe we can talk about that as well. Yes, and that is extremely, it's going to be a very interesting talk and very important. As you said, data literacy is no longer something that people want or don't want. It's completely like literacy of reading and writing and math. Absolutely. So uh, that's extremely important. And I look forward to that. So more broadly, what do you find exciting in what's coming up in the learning space? Yeah, um, well, 
But the, the background for this is something I mentioned at the beginning. I've directed e-learning and developed e-learning at our school, which is sort of a medium-sized school, 11,000 students. So it's not tiny, but it's not huge mm -hmm. um, for many years. One of my personal takeaways from, from this term and from this course is that uh, I think online teaching has to become a lot more sophisticated. And they have to, people have to stop thinking of uh, digital delivery as just another just a digital form of classroom delivery, mm -hmm. which I'm sure, you know, this is nothing I need to tell anybody, everybody who isn't, I mean, if I had given this talk a year, two and two years ago, I would have had to push hard for this message. And many people have said, no, no, no way. But now, of course, we have hundreds and thousands of teachers and lecturers in all levels of education that actually have experienced this firsthand, that just yes. taking what they do in the classroom into a digital space will not work as such. Mm, so you know, that's what I mean by you know sophistication. So they need to understand how that how how that is different, and in mm -hmm. order to really understand that, they have to continue doing it. Yes, so they cannot just go back into the classroom, as it were. And so, kind of a message for the new normal in here, I think, which is kind of sad as well, because I'm more aware maybe than others about you know how how impoverished digital learning, even at its best, can be. I mean, there's this serious sensomotoric deprivation going on in digital learning that you cannot really compensate. You cannot compensate for what you have in the classroom. Huh? Yeah, so I don't think it's going to happen that we just return to the old ways. And I don't think it's desirable. And what I learned from the students, uh, I think I also learned, and that's slightly different to my classroom teaching, that it's very important to hear from the students what they how they experience it. I mean, in the classroom, I think you have like hundreds of years of classroom experience when a student comes and says, no, this is not working. I can't do this. We are likely to put it down to, well, you're, I don't know, you're, you're behind or you're ahead or you're just mm -hmm. a different kind of student. But yes. I think in this case, we just need to ask uh, the students what works for them and what doesn't in a very serious way, because this is a completely new way of teaching. It's literally a new world. So absolutely, we're talking Adam and Eve here. Yes, absolutely. And that is such a critical thing in the in-person classroom as well, except where, as you said, we have, we're much more used to mm -hmm. gauging the way people look and the way mm -hmm. people react and asking questions. Yes. But, but it is extremely important to always ask and find out. And you're asking in, in different ways, aren't you? You yes. said you use Kahoot as one way of probably finding out what, which is a multiple choice yes. answers yes. that you create the question and the students send in multiple choice answers. But how are some of the unique ways that you try to gauge how students are reacting in your class, how they feel about it? Well, I do. I mean, I, I, I over feedback. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I think in a normal session, which unfortunately in our school goes on for too long, but let's say a normal session of 45 minutes or so, I will probably create five polls, surveys on the fly. Okay. So a question comes up and instead of just asking and in the classroom, I would look around and the people in the first row would lift their heads and nod and I would take that as a yes or a no. In this case, I create in this tool, in this webinar, I create a poll and I ask, you know, ask a question and uh, there is going to be a lot more participation. So I create yes. on the fly polls. I, um, when I put something online that is supposed to be worked on independently, so in between classes, I will not put it on without asking directly right afterwards for feedback. So, for example, I would ask you, would you please 
uh, Kinga, would you please do this test between now and the next class? And once you mm -hmm. come out of the test, I immediately ask you, you know, did you like this test? Did you not? What did you not like it? What did mm. you think about it? So fantastic questions. Now that's, that's why I'm saying it's overkill feedback, but I found that at least for the first iteration, it's really, really important to do that. The uh, third thing I do, uh, I mean, the students, I, I don't know if you have taught online as well, but yes. we cannot force for legal reasons for the students to be online, like visible, okay? Mm -hmm. So we don't have uh, their pictures up. Some lecturers try to force the students, but it's really not legal, at least not in Europe mm -hmm. uh, or in Germany. What I do is I have the so-called simultaneous SIP, which actually I stole from a persuasion expert online. So in the beginning, everybody is supposed to have a drink, like a coffee cup or a glass of water or anything, a drink, a yes. soft drink, and we're going to drink together. So we would lift the glasses, you and I would come together and have the simultaneous sip. And do let's do it. Have the yeah. sip with our glass. <laughs> That's fantastic. How and you have to do it at the same moment. So basically, everybody in class, even though we're not together, does the same thing at the very beginning. And I found mm. this to be magical. When I don't do it, the students will say, hey, we can't start. We haven't done our simultaneous sip yet. How fascinating. I haven't heard this before, but it really creates, you feel that it creates a, a moment of unity. Yes, absolutely. It does. And another thing I did, but that's difficult because, you know, the, the videos, the video uh, image has a different order on every screen or pretty much mm -hmm. for every, every feed. So what you can also do is try to get, hold hands so I could put my hand down and you could try to reach up. But, you know. Oh, I see. To somehow <laughs> simultaneously be. How fantastic. Those are very unique. Yeah. So you see that somehow you need to bring the body into it, you know? Yes. Um, and then so the students will be there on chat. They mm -hmm. will very rarely, very few students dare to do audio un until the class is really quite, quite progressed, quite a lot progressed. Mm -hmm. And so they mostly will be in chat. And that I found the, probably the greatest challenge. But as I said, I've known this from online teaching from before, the general level of participation online is a lot higher than in the classroom. That's why you have these levels of students to the very back rows where the people yes. who don't want to be disturbed. And so if you are, have continuous participation of 10 to 15% of the students, you're lucky in the classroom. Right. In an online classroom, I would say it's 50 to 60% continuously participating. So it's, a, it's just reversed, huh? It's right, what people fantastic. know, it's called the flipped classroom. And the flipped classroom experience really yes. travels nicely to the digital classroom. That's really interesting. Fantastic. Because you do have some anonymity when you participate in, for yeah. example, a, a survey or rather than having everyone put up their hands yeah, or ask yeah. a question, they can ask a question yeah. online and, and creates in some ways, if it's well designed, much more comfort for yeah. students to reach out. And in a yeah. in a class where they're learning data science, yeah. but they're not data scientists, yeah. so already the the subject itself mm -hmm. might be causing a lot of discomfort yeah. and maybe a little bit of alienation. Yeah. This is a, such a great way to get them involved, and I love that. Have a sip together and and hold hands virtually. That's mm -hmm. really really lovely. It's actually important what you said just now about the anonymity. I hadn't thought of that, but. Maybe because it's digital, the anonymity is less important than in the classroom. Mm. So people will, they'll, on average, I think the students are more confident and a little braver online. But this must, as you said yourself, this must vary from topic to topic, also probably from teacher to teacher, you know. Definitely. It sounds like you've created a fantastic learning experience and a way for really people to come together and find the 
digital solution to do that and to teach a subject that is extremely important, but many people also really shy away from. So this is a really fantastic thing. Well, thank you so much, Marcus. I really look forward to your talk and hearing more about your work. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kinga. I'm glad to contribute. I'm looking forward to the conference too. Yes. Even though it's virtual, but I think it's going to be an exciting opportunity to share information with so many people worldwide. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Thank you.